0: welcome to another episode of eds up sponsored by the southern early childhood association eds up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them hosted by dr kathy grace and dr kenya wolf with the graduate center for the study of early learning at the university of mississippi
1: hello everybody this is kathy grace along with kenya wolf for another broadcast of eds up and we are so pleased today to have a young woman who has a lot to bring to our conversation from a variety of angles. Kristen Bauhoff is with us. And uh, Kristen, I'm going to start us off by just asking a couple of questions about you and your family. And if you'll tell us a little bit about your family and how you are really living and supporting and working with your children, some of which have been diagnosed as somewhere on the autism spectrum. And so could
0: you just talk to us a little about your family? Sure. Uh, My husband and I are high school sweethearts from Louisiana. We now live in North Carolina with our three children. My oldest son is 13 years old and in middle school. And then we have 10-year-old boy-girl twins in elementary school. So actually all three of my kids are neurodivergent. And what that means is that their brains process, learn and experience the world in a different way than the majority of people. Neurodivergent, if you look at the word, it means brain difference. And it includes autism, ADHD, learning differences, and more. My kids are autistic. Some of them have ADHD. Some experience anxiety and they are all wonderfully complex and completely fantastic. And if it weren't for my exceptional children, I might not even be on your podcast.
1: Well, I would say that you and your husband are also exceptional parents. I'm sure part of this journey you're taking is a learning experience that unfolds almost every day as your children go up and, and get older. How old are your twins? They're 10. Well, I know that as you're, coming through your schooling experience with your children as well as the developmental uh, sequences that you're experiencing with with milestones from when they were, of course, infants all the way up now to teenagers. How would you help our listeners to understand some of the lessons that you've learned throughout the last 13, 14 years
0: from the beginning and the the birth of your children? So, I have learned over and over that the only person I can change is myself. I'm not trying to change my kids. I'm doing a lot of work on myself. I realized pretty quickly that I was not equipped with all of the skills I needed to help my complex children be successful. Traditional parenting advice like timeouts, separation during emotional outbursts, manipulating children through bribes, rewards, and punishments, all of that resulted in my kids feeling less safe with me. It fractured our relationships. We felt less connected. We were all dysregulated and we couldn't possibly solve any problems. So I needed to see what was happening in my house through a new lens. And that's where the brain state model of conscious discipline comes in. So I'm gonna jump in quickly and tell you there are three brain states, survival, emotional, and executive. Each one represents a network of systems that ask an important question. So the survival state or the brainstem asks, am I safe? If the answer is no, this is when you go into fight, flight, freeze, surrender. If the answer is yes, yes, my body has a felt sense of safety. Then you move up to the emotional state of the brain. The emotional state or limbic system asks, am I loved?" If the answer is no, and I don't feel connected and I don't feel like I belong, then I might use hurtful words and I'm focused on what I don't want, and nothing is going my way. But if the answer is yes, then I can move into the highest brain state. So the highest brain state is the executive state or prefrontal lobes. It asks, what can I learn? It's curious. In this state, we have access to all of our brilliance, and we can solve problems. So I made that all sound really easy, but there are a lot of factors that go into staying composed in that executive state. And that's where the seven powers of conscious discipline come in. I'm gonna just go into one, give you one example. The power of perception reminds us that no one can make you angry without your permission. It says that conflict is inevitable, so it's best to see it as an opportunity to teach and learn. We can't avoid conflict, so let's learn from it. And that I have a choice to see all behavior as communication. So using the power of perception in this way helps me maintain my composure because it allows me to think differently, which makes me feel differently, and then I can respond differently to my children. So there's six other powers too, and with the help of all the powers and lots of practice, everything about parenting started to shift for me. Uh, I was building skills and rewiring my brain, and now my job is to keep my kids safe. When I approach my kids, I'm regulated, I'm wishing them well, and my my intention is to be helpful. Of course, just like everyone, I do the best I can in the moment, so I don't nail this every time. When I goof, I have an opportunity to apologize and repair our relationship. And in Conscious Discipline, we say that mistakes are are an opportunity to learn. This is lifelong work on myself with a focus on safety, connection, and problem solving. And only then can I learn more and more about neurodivergent brains and how to specifically support my children.
1: If you could talk a little bit about your job and how your job has led you into an advocacy role as well as the role that you are in terms of a parent, but also how you have found the information that you have to be so important to people who are involved in education as well as other families.
0: Yes, I am so fortunate to work for Conscious Discipline. Conscious Discipline is created by Dr. Becky Bailey, who has also been a guest on this podcast, so I encourage everyone to go listen to that episode. Uh, Conscious Discipline is an adult-first, trauma-responsive approach to self-regulation, wellness, and classroom management. So it teaches seven powers for conscious adults to respond rather than react to children in more helpful ways. It teaches the brain state model, which explains which skills we have access to at any time, as well as how to gain access to higher skills. And then you can co-regulate with your child and upshift their brain too. So conscious discipline is not specific to teachers and everything also applies to parenting. I came to conscious discipline years ago as a parent to learn how to support my neurodivergent family. Now I'm a conscious discipline certified instructor. I'm a parent educator. I help parents and teachers learn how to support and include children with differences, and I get to help adults start their journey of becoming their best selves.
2: That's awesome. <laughs> I know that there are so many parents and educators that have been just extremely fortunate to be touched by your work. I'm one of those. I actually flew to Orlando as for Actually, as soon as I heard that you all were doing a conscious discipline training specific to working with children um, who have been diagnosed with autism, because for so many years, and my background is um, early childhood special education, and for so many years, I felt like there was a little bit of a disconnect between what we were told about children with autism and their ability to have relationships, and uh, so When I came to your training, it was kind of an aha moment for me when I learned how to frame conscious discipline and working with children um, specifically who have been diagnosed with autism. So could you share for parents and educators out there, um, there is this perception that children don't, you know, aren't interested in interacting with their teachers. And you all kind of were able to dispel, dispel that myth for me, when I went to your training. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, that is a great myth that I would love to dispel. All of us are wired for
0: connection. We all want to be in relationships. Sometimes that is harder for some neurodivergent people, but that doesn't mean that they don't want to be in relationship. And it doesn't mean that it's not worth trying. Keep trying. Build on their interests, make sure that they feel safe. You can use things like the I love you rituals, which are a very structured, predictable way to build connection with the four components of eye contact, touch, presence and playfulness. Now, we tweak it a little bit for the neurodivergent community. You don't have to have eye contact. The mirror neurons are actually working, even if they're not looking right at you, because sometimes that can be overwhelming. So they want to be in connection. My children adore me. We are in wonderful relationships that are based on safety and connection and problem solving. And it's just not
2: true that they're not good at relationships. It's just not true. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And I wanna hear specifically some of your experiences as a parent and working with teachers I hear from a lot of teachers that they understand the importance of inclusion and they want to have all kinds of children in their classroom, but they don't feel equipped to set up environments that are supportive. They don't feel like they have the time to deal with some behaviors in their classroom. And so they just need extra support and education about how to work with children who are neurodivergent in their classrooms. Can you share maybe as a parent, what are some of the best practices you saw teachers use to help support your kids?
0: I'll tell you what we do at home and it all translates to the classroom too. I like to think, I'm gonna teach you my five, my five things to think about to make your home or your classroom more inclusive. And what's interesting is that these five things make it so that the neurodivergent brain doesn't have to work so hard. But the great news is these five things help everyone in your classroom. So if you feel like you don't have the time to do this, think about how it's helping everyone in your classroom. Okay, so number one, you can't see me, but I'm holding my hands like binoculars. Number one, you're going to make it visual, visual. Make it visual. Make visual (laughs) task schedules, checklists, weekly Activities, Um, visuals calm the lower centers of the brain. They really need visuals. If you take nothing else from this talk, make visuals. And you'll know where to start because you want to start wherever there is chaos. Where there is chaos, we add structure, and that's how you know what visuals to make first. All right, so then number two, now my hands are holding a jackhammer. Make it concrete. You want to use literal language. Say what to do and be specific. Number three, now my arms are a metronome. Keep it pre duh Our brains love patterns. And on the other hand, they don't like change. Change is hard. So you want to develop routines and use them consistently so that things are predictable. Number four, now my hands are noise canceling headphones over my ears. You wanna make it filtered, so that was filtered. You wanna make it filtered. You wanna filter the environment because neurodivergent brains process sensory information like it's brand new every time. They have to do the work to process it brand new every time. So if we can make that workload lighter, it gives their nervous system a break. And every child has a different sensory profile. So this is something where you'll have to be a detective and learn from the child exactly what they need in terms of the sensory environment. Okay, so number five, now I'm tying a bow with my hands. You want to tie tasks and learning to their individual special interest because neurodivergent brains have this amazing ability to focus intensely to do a deep dive on their favorite topic. So that's like a gateway to their world. So
2: let's use it. Yeah, that's awesome. I absolutely had a child that knew everything about dinosaurs. I mean, I learned so <laughs> much about dinosaurs from this little boy. To this day, I can't even mention a dinosaur without thinking about him. So, well, uh, I can tell were... you the entire history of Nintendo. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nice. Nice. Well, those were great examples. I would love I've always heard make it visual, but it wasn't until I went to your training and saw the hundreds of photos of ways that teachers had made different things visual. And so I'd love to put a link to any resources in our podcast for teachers. But can you share how at home you make it visual? especially when your children were younger. I'm thinking about like maybe a bedtime routine or something like that.
0: Yeah, sure. So um, we have a visual task schedule for our morning routine right now. And we're still using these, you know, my kids are 13, 10 and 10. But they each have a checklist for what they need to do in the morning. It includes things like eat breakfast, get dressed, potty, pack your lunch, pack your water, they're older, so I can include more things. But you do want to tailor this to be uh, the number of tasks that that individual can handle and, and not overwhelm them too much. But mine can handle, you know, about eight things on the list. And each list is uniquely themed to their favorite things. So one son has soccer on it. Another one has Nintendo and video games. And then my daughter has everything Disney that she loves. So that makes them want to engage with these more. And what it does is it takes the mental load of your exec- executive function skills. It takes all of that work and puts it out in the visual so that they always know where they are and what to do next. Uh, we also use bedtime task schedule. Now this one's a little bit different. The morning they each have their own. At bedtime, we make our way through kind of a board game as we go through each step. So it has things like bath time, um, brush teeth, read book, talk snuggle, do I love you rituals. And then I have three characters that show each of my kids and the characters move along as we make our way through bedtime schedule. This greatly reduces the stress of morning and bedtime, which are some of the hardest times in your house. Especially if you think about bedtime, they've already had such a long day and worked so hard. So any way we can make that a little easier and more predictable and routine is better. Another one is um, that I post a weekly dinner menu. And this points out that there's this feeling of anxious. The feeling of anxious says, I need more information. So when one of my children would ask me over and over again, the same question over and over again, because they just were feeling anxious and they need information and they need reassurance that it hasn't changed. I realized when one of my kids would come down to dinner and see what was on the table and they didn't know what to expect. And they came down and even if it was something that they liked, the surprise of seeing what it was, made it really hard. It's almost like they had a re- uh, their nervous system had a reaction. They would crawl under the table and I could tell that they were really having a hard time. So once we put the dinner menu on the fridge, the weekly dinner menu, everybody knows what to expect. They are not surprised. They come down, we sit down and we eat dinner. They can look at that schedule as many times as they want to. And we like to say schedules never get tired of telling kids what to do. <laughs> so you want to leverage um, visuals wherever there
2: is anxiety or chaos. Awesome. Well, I love that you have problem solved that to where you don't take it personally. And I think that's one of the beauties of conscious discipline is it teaches us not to take any behavior personally. It's not about the food. It's not, you know, it's not about us. It really is about them processing information and all all humans. Um, so I think that. I could see where that would be really important. I still struggle with that with my children who are not (laughs) considered (laughs) neurodivergent. Um, But so, okay, moving on, one of the other things I learned about, and you all did it so well in that training that I went to was work systems. And those work systems that you set up were, some of them were as simple as having two buckets and, you know, first and then next. Can you share just for, educators and parents. How could that be used to help children at their multiple ways? But I'll let you explain.
0: Yes. So uh, a work system, or if you want to learn more about this, if you look at TEACH, T-E-A-C-C-H from UNC, structured learning, this is a really structured way to explain to the student exactly what work they're going to be doing. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. They know when they're done. They move Things from left to right. It's often um, self correcting so they can't make a mistake. I have not been to a teach conference, but I would love to go to one and I can point anyone to our real work systems
2: experts <laughs> in conscious discipline if you like. That'd be great. We'd love a link. Any resources. Um, I just, I found it fascinating. Even the idea of the, I believe there were, were some screws that had bolts. And so taking something as, you know, great for fine motor, but having, you know, a very visual, I think there was a label with a uh, Velcro so that you could have that satisfaction of like, you know, moving your task from needing to do to being done. And then from, you know, left to right, uh, moving the bolt off the, the screw and into a different bucket and how that task could occupy You know time especially for teachers who you know oftentimes there are children that need something to do when you're doing a whole group and that can be occupying their time but also they're getting that fine motor skill and they're having that sense of accomplishment so um, it's just i thought it was a great great tool for well i think all children could use a work system so i just really liked some of those suggestions (laughs) So, Kristen, do you have any resources that parents and educators can access? I'm thinking about specifically if they're just finding out about a diagnosis, what is your advice for them as individuals and maybe what are some resources that you could point them towards?
0: The beginning of this journey is very, very challenging. It takes a long time to get answers. And in the meantime, things are not going well and you don't have any help. And then- Because we have a medical model of treatment in our country, you get a lengthy report of all the ways your child is, quote, broken. Here's what I believe. Your child is not broken. He or she is exactly the same kiddo that you've been loving on since before this diagnosis. The diagnosis just gives you access to services and some directions for where to learn more and how to support them. It does not change your child or your relationship with them overnight. Well, and I also want to acknowledge this is probably not what you were expecting. And you have probably have a wide range of feelings about it. All of your feelings are valid. Allow those feelings to tell you what's going on. Do the work to identify them and process through them. Unfortunately, they don't just come once and you're done. (laughs) These new feelings will continue to surface as you move through your journey. Next, you want to find your community. It, It can feel really isolated to be on this journey. So reach out to other parents who can relate to your experience. They can give you support and advice. I also like to listen to the voices of autistic adults. They can help you learn more about how to support your child. Um, They really understand what our children are going through. And I would say, have hope. In the time that I've been on this journey, I've seen that there is a mindset shift underway. We're learning about neurodiversity, accepting differences, accommodating needs, removing barriers and empowering every individual. And all of that has me feeling very hopeful for you and for all of our children. And then remember, you are the expert on your child. You can be their best advocate. It is a gift to transform into the parent your child needs you to be. It's amazing. So as far as specific resources, I am a lifelong learner. I read and listen to books and podcasts, tons of books and podcasts that helped me learn more about neurodivergence and how to support them. Um, I would say if you wanted some quick places to start, I love Dr. Emily King. I love Debbie Reber at Tilt Parenting, the Neurodiversity Podcast, Behavior Revolution, Autism from the Inside, and How to ADHD. Those are just some resources that I pull from. And then I also love Barry Prezant's, Um Uniquely
2: Human. That book's fantastic. Thank you. Well, that gives us a great place to start. Well, we really have appreciated having you here. You're such an inspiration. I personally have learned so much from you and love your message. We really appreciate your time. And I know that our listeners are going to be clicking on those links and learning more. So we've just really enjoyed having you and your perspective and knowledge here today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm glad that we can all change the world to make it better for our kids. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. If you have an early education topic you'd like to discuss, let us know about it at edsup at olmiss.edu. The Ed's Up podcast is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.